It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Say it ain't so, Dr. Seuss. We've got to talk about this. At first, I thought it was a case of cancel culture run amok, and there may still be some of that. How many times have I spent reading all the cat in the hat, and the cat in the hat comes back, and green eggs and ham with my kids? I mean, I know a lot of those books by heart. Um, but now Dr. Seuss's own company says it's going to cancel six of the titles. So we'll get into that on the podcast. Twitter yesterday, by the way, says it will start labeling tweets that share misleading information about the vaccines. This is interesting. Instead, it'll be links to the relevant official uh, wording from CDC. And there's going to be five strikes and you're out system for people who keep doing this. It's more generous than baseball. If you post misinformation about the virus, the efficacy of treatments, um, regulations and restrictions in association with health advisories, this is pretty far-reaching, misinformation about the prevalence of the virus and the risk of infection or death or misleading affiliations. If you claim to be a doctor, well, I get that one. Um, All sounds good, except, you know, I can see a lot of room for interpretation there. What if you say, in my opinion, these vaccines are not available or we're not going to reach herd immunity or we will reach herd immunity? I mean, there's a lot of room for debate here, not just about policy and lockdowns, but about these vaccines, especially with the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, rolling out today, uh, significant increase. I guess they're sending out all the J&J vaccines that have been made so far at once. And so, for example, in Maryland, it's a 40% increase in the number of doses that will be available over the next week. But I don't know that Johnson & Johnson can keep that up. All right, I got a lot to talk about today. Uh, some of it will be so in-depth that you'll be so glad that you tuned in. So let's start story number one the Andrew Cuomo situation. And we'll start with his brother, because last night on Chris Cuomo's show on CNN, primetime show, and I, I've known Chris Cuomo for a very long time, interviewed him many times. Um, Cuomo came out, and of course, he's taken a lot of flack for not talking about the trials and tribulations of his brother in the midst of these sexual harassment scales. And Chris said this, let me say something I'm sure is very obvious to you who watch my show. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on with my brother. And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover it. They've covered it extensively, and they will continue to do so. I've always cared very deeply about these issues, and profoundly so. I just wanted to tell you that. Well, at another point, he says basically he doesn't have a choice, that this is the CNN policy. And of course, he can't cover this scandal involving his brother. The two brothers are close. Um, But the problem for CNN is, and by the way, when he says CNN has covered extensively, no, it's covering it extensively now. CNN did not cover extensively last week. When the first sexual harassment allegations broke against Governor Cuomo, uh, the entire output for about three days was one item that lasted all of 39 seconds on CNN. It wasn't until the weekend and the New York Times story with the second accuser CNN and MSNBC and others said, wow, this is a pretty big story. I guess we uh, get, should cover it. We, can't, uh, we can no longer do the uh, nothing to see here. Let's just move along. Um, now, the problem is that back in the early pandemic, when Andrew Cuomo was a media darling, when he was holding those daily briefings, when he was getting uh, lionized by the mainstream media, he appeared on his brother's show nine times. And what CNN said says now is that, well, we made an exception at that point for him to go talk to his brother because of the importance. And remember, Chris had himself had COVID-19. But now we're going back to the regulatory policy where he can't talk about it. 
And that, of course, kind of sounds like and it's a problem for the network. I mean, I understand Chris's position. He can't do it now. But why did he do it then? So it's a problem for the network having made the call to that it was okay when Andrew Cuomo was riding high for him to be on his brother's show and kidding around. And, of course, he won an Emmy for his briefings. But it's not okay now. It kind of looks and smells like uh, good news is fine, bad news not so much. Some people upset about this on the Twitter, for example, Megan McCain. So you interviewed your brother a thousand times with giant Q-tips joking about his sex life during COVID. But now that he's an accused predator, it's a conflict? Give me an absolute break. Hypocrites. This is ground zero of why the American public doesn't trust any of the media. Rich Lowry, National Review. Obviously, I can't cover it because he's my brother. Would have been a pretty good rule from the beginning. And I have to agree with that. And I think it's CNN's fault as much as anyone's. Uh, all right. Now, to the latest developments on Governor Cuomo. So now we have an official investigation underway. There will be a team of lawyers hired by the Democratic State Attorney General in New York, Letitia James. That team will be given far-reaching subpoena powers to request documents, compel witnesses to testify, including the governor, who may well have to testify under oath. Obviously, this will take weeks and weeks, if not months. Uh, so it's supposed to be an independent inquiry, so there's no question of any conflict. Um, and as the New York Times, which has been all over this, to its credit, home state governor, Democrat, uh, the investigators will be required to produce uh, a final report, the results of which could be politically devastating for Cuomo. The claims from both women, this was originally Lindsay Boylan, who wrote this long medium piece but wouldn't talk to the press about how the unwanted kiss and um, let's play strip poker and all that. And then Charlotte Bennett, interview with the New York Times, uh, quite extensive, uh, talking about how in her in her account, not disputed by the governor, uh, he had talked to her about her love life. Uh, he had asked if she ever had sex with an older man. He said that he would have sex with anybody who was over 22. He said he was lonely. He hadn't hugged anybody. And she says it was pretty clear he wanted to have sex with her. She worked for him. They both worked for him. So uh, Cuomo's office has said the governor will voluntarily cooperate with this investigation, and it will instruct all state employees to cooperate as well. Now, there's what's being called a third accuser, but I want to say right here that this is a very different situation, in my estimation, you may disagree, than the first two, because the first two women worked at fairly senior levels for Andrew Cuomo. One was an executive assistant, that's Charlotte uh, Bennett. The other was a top aide, no question about it, and that is Lindsay Boylan. But now, there's a woman named Anna Ruch, R-U-C-H, uh, Times has this story. She never met Governor Cuomo before enc encountering him at a crowded New York City wedding reception back in 2019. She had a kind of a positive impression. The governor was working the room. Uh, Ruch, who's now 33, thanked him for his kind words about her friends, I guess the ones who were getting married. What happened next unsettled her. Cuomo put his hand on Ruch's bare lower back, she said in an interview with the Times. When she removed his hand with her own hand, the governor remarked that she seemed aggressive, and he placed his hands on her cheeks. What's striking about this is somebody took a picture of this. So you see Governor Cuomo standing kind of one arm's length from Anna Roach and holding her face in his hands. He asked if he could kiss her. He said, may I kiss you? Loudly enough for a nearby friend to hear that. She was bewildered by this. She pulled away as the governor drew closer. Uh, here's her interview. I was so confused and shocked and embarrassed. 
I turned my head away and didn't have words in that moment. Uh, Governor had no uh, comment on this, just went back to his previous statement that some of the things he said and did may have been misinterpreted as unwanted flirtation to the extent that anyone felt that way. I'm truly sorry about that. Now, I, you know, maybe this was boorish behavior. I guess it was. I don't want to mince words here. I'm not defending this. Um, you know, maybe he was just being friendly, but I don't know. When she, when she takes his hand off her back, I think at that point you don't move in and start touching her face. But the only diff- the key difference here is she never worked for him. She never met this guy. So he didn't have any you know, power over her. He couldn't promote her. He couldn't retaliate against her. By the way, he didn't end up you know, having sex with either of the other two women, but clearly he wanted to, at least in the second case. So it is part of a pattern, as the Time story puts it. Uh, words and actions that have a minimum made three women who are decades his junior feel deeply uncomfortable, as they have told it. Uh, so now you have some liberals who are not happy with Cuomo talking about sexual harassment. For example, Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist, uh, said Cuomo's fate will tell us whether there's still power in the Me Too movement. She says if the scandal had broken a few years ago at the height of the Me Too movement, high-profile Democrats would have felt no choice but to call for Cuomo's resignation. Now, a few Democrats have done that in New York, but not Chuck Schumer, not Kirsten Gillibrand. And that's interesting because Kirsten Gillibrand, excuse me, was the first senator to call for Al Franken to step down, which he ultimately did after those pictures of him, you know, pretending to grope women and so forth, and women saying that he had, you know, slapped their buttocks or grabbed them during picture-taking sessions. Uh, She uh, suffered a backlash, and a presidential campaign went nowhere. And so, uh, in the opinion of Michelle Goldberg, the whole focus in the culture wars have shifted from uh, Me Too and sex to race in the wake of George Floyd's horrible murder and other obviously cases of, uh, or alleged cases of police brutality against African-Americans. And when Tara Reid made her rather inconsistent allegations against Joe Biden, that ended up going nowhere. So in the opinion of Michelle Goldberg, um, she says that she thinks it would be better if Cuomo just stepped down, but she doesn't see that happening. Uh, She said Democrats are sick of holding themselves to a higher set of standards than Republicans who kind of defended Donald Trump, despite all the uh, allegations of sexual harassment, even assault against him. And now there's a freshman congressman, Madison Cawthorn, who um, has been accused of sexual harassment, and Republicans are not calling for any investigation of that congressman. But finally, she says, and maybe this is all about the media hothouse and, and the online Twitter hothouse, um, a poll taken up before last week's sexual harassment allegations, but after all the nursing home deaths and the cover-up there, 57% of New York voters and 81% of Democrats still approve of Andrew Cuomo, even though he is loathed, says Goldberg, by much of New York's progressive political class. Now, the question is, what is the next poll in the poll after that show in terms of decline in support, particularly among Democrats, now that we know about the sexual harassment allegations? Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. Let's move on to the fallout over Donald Trump's CPAC speech on Sunday. Wall Street Journal's conservative editorial page, not exactly in uh, the fan camp right now with the 45th president. The title of the editorial, The Grievance of Trump's Past. If he was so great for politically for the GOP, why is the party now out of power, asked the journal. 
the great sigh of relief. This is a little snarky. Uh, you heard on Sunday was the sound of Democrats in the media welcoming Donald Trump's return to public attention with the C, uh, speech at CPAC. What would Washington Post writers do without him? But the column goes on to say that as long as the Republican Party, which is the Trump Party now, and there's absolutely positively no question about it, with some prominent exceptions, Mitt Romney, Mitch McConnell, Liz Cheney, as long as they, the bulk of the Republican Party is falling in line behind what the foreign president himself now calls Trumpism, uh, the Wall Street Journal, for its part, believes that by laying out his political enemies list and clearly being bent on revenge against anybody who voted to impeach or convict him over his claims of a stolen election, these intra-party fights will sap GOP energy and resources when their priority now should be retaking Congress in 2022. Basically, the journal saying Trump's going to make that much harder if he's going to continue to talk about stolen election and so forth. Now, as the Biden months roll on and the policy consequences of a 2020 defeat become stark, says the journal, perhaps the party's grassroots will begin to look past the Trump era to a new generation of candidates. Also, let me, let me throw this in. Uh, in an interview on Sunday night with Fox's Steve Hilton after the CPAC speech, Trump said, I definitely gave the number of 10,000 National Guardsmen and said, I think you should have 10,000 of the National Guard ready, meaning on January 6th when there was the Capitol riot. Now, this is the first, I, I guess he mentioned it and they were alluded to it at CPAC, first I ever heard of Donald Trump wanting to call in the National Guard. Of course, the, the failure to call in the National Guard, which didn't arrive, and the bureaucratic bottlenecks there till about 6 p.m. when all the damage had been done and people had already been killed at the Capitol was just an absolute tragedy that made what was going to be a tragedy in, in any uh, regard so much worse, so much more dangerous. Those reinforcements should have been there. Well, Nancy Pelosi now says that Trump just made up the notion that she rejected the National Guard request. Here's more of Trump with the Fox interview. They took that number, from what I understand, they gave it to the people at the Capitol, which is controlled by Pelosi. And I heard they, I heard they rejected it because they didn't think it would look good. So you know that was a big mistake. Well, actually, it was the Sarge, House Sergeant of Arms, the Senate Sergeant of Arms, and there was talk uh, in consultation with the Pentagon about the optics of having all these National Guard troops go up there. You know what? The optics would have been a lot better if people hadn't been killed. The optics would have been a lot better if the Capitol had been defended and the Capitol Police hadn't been overrun. So I'm still mad about that. But for Trump to now try to shift this to Nancy Pelosi, um, the Washington Post fact checker looked at this, uh, the claim by the foreign president, and gave it for Pinocchios. And before we move on from Trump, uh, it came out, I guess, a story late yesterday in the New York Times that shortly before he left office, before he left the White House, Donald and Melania got the vaccine. And I have absolutely positively no problem, even with an outgoing president, a very important person in our country, a person who got, you know, 74 million votes, getting vaccinated. And he's also 74, so he's qualified just by virtue of his age. But the thing is, it was done so quietly, nobody knew about it until yesterday. And so at the CPAC speech, Donald Trump did say to his credit, everybody should go out and get vaccinated, but he never said that when he was president. And he could have taken the vaccine on camera, as Joe Biden did, as Kamala Harris did, as Anthony Fauci did, and use that to urge people, even though he was leaving office, that, look, I did a great job with Operation Warp Speed. I have no problem them saying that. Some credit goes to Pfizer and Moderna, but the president, I've always said, didn't get enough credit from the media for this. But why didn't he? I guess he was kind of consumed with the post-election battle, but still, 
Why did he do it privately? Why didn't he seize that opportunity? I don't have an answer for that. Story number three is this is a nice segue into this coronavirus segment. Uh, President Biden announcing that Merck will help its pharmaceutical rival, Johnson & Johnson, make this new vaccine, the third one now to be approved by the FDA, and that should help with ramping up production. Uh, Politico has an interesting piece, though. Says a week into his presidency, Joe Biden made the confident prediction that any American who wanted a COVID shot would be able to get one by spring. Uh-oh. By the fourth week, the timeline had slipped to midsummer. Then it was like by the end of July. But as the administration pre- prepared to authorize this third coronavirus vaccine, the J&J one, with a surge of doses on the horizon, Biden last week came out with a new target, widespread vaccine availability by April. Well, if you're in any of the states, which is most of the states, where it has just been so frustrating for people to be able to make an appointment for a vaccine because there aren't enough doses, that would strike you as an interesting surprise. Here it is. We're already in early March. So Politico says the mixed messages have risked sowing confusion across the country. Um, Here we are going into the second year of the pandemic, and this tests the administration's ability to overcome There are lots of pockets out there of vaccine skepticism. People don't want to take it. They're afraid of it. They think it may make them more sick. So that's a real challenge and would be for any administration. So here you have, you know, obviously one week it's April. The next week it's July. Now it's back to April. What are people supposed to think? Zeke Emanuel, bioethicist who uh, has advised the Biden transition, on this score, I think the communication has been very uneven, says Emmanuel, who's Rahm's brother, in case you're wondering. Uh, there's been some uncertainty because there's a wide variety of estimates here. You get people at different times uh, either taking the optimistic view or the pessimistic view and going out with that. Now, the political story says the White House has long viewed this Johnson & Johnson vaccine as critical not only because it's a third company, because you only need one dose. Now, it's not as effective. The effective rate is around 72% compared to 95% for Pfizer and Moderna. But it does seem to be higher than uh, 72%, maybe around 80% in the U.S. in terms of keeping people out of the hospital. So in other words, it might not stop you from getting COVID, but you don't get very sick or sick enough that you have to be hospitalized. So that's pretty good. But now, are you going to have people who don't want the J&J vaccine? They want to hold out for Pfizer and Moderna? It's a complicated puzzle. Um, uh, a a woman who's the head of the White House uh, Health Equity Task Force, in other words, make sure that the vaccine is uh, distributed equally even to minority communities and communities where people are resistant, is quoted by Politico as saying, all three uh, vaccines are safe and highly effective at preventing what we care about most, and that's very serious illness and death. Administration officials uh, are... um, coordinating a federal ad blitz just to try to go out and sell um, these vaccines. You also have the problem with the virus variants and whether or not they might need a booster shot. That's still uh, being debated. Anyway, uh, the White House, bottom line here, White House has been very, very wary of overpromising. Joe Biden has said again and again and again, I will always tell you the truth. So when there were complications from the winter storms that uh, was a setback, he said, yeah, it's a setback. They would much rather set a low bar and then exceed that than promise something. And then it turns out because of whatever complications arise that that um, promises can't be kept. And then you look like a failure. So that's nothing. But, but on the other hand, do you risk being too pessimistic? In other words, President Biden, if he says by April, he wants it to be a reality by April. Otherwise, you know how the media are. You set that bench book. Well, Biden said April and it didn't happen. 
But if he's too cautious and too pessimistic, people are thinking, well, why should I even get this vaccine if I still can't go out and see people and I still have to wear a mask? I mean, it's really kind of a muddle. I don't understand the great reluctance so much in part of the country for people to get this vaccine. These are miracle drugs. I mean, when the polio vaccine was invented, Jonas Salk, you know, uh, and, and the measles vaccine, I mean, these were hailed as national victories and people thought, finally, we can conquer this terrible disease. Well, we can do that as well. We have these vaccines. We didn't have to wait two years. We didn't have to wait five years for them. But people got to take them. And government, that includes state government and local government and county government, got to find a way to get the shots into the arms. Story number four. I love a good rant as much as anybody, particularly when it's a well-written good rant. And there is a rant on Medium, a very lengthy uh, piece. It's got like four parts. By Donald McNeil Jr. You may remember that name. He's a New York Times reporter who was covering COVID, longtime science reporter, who uh, was initially given a pass for using the N-word and saying some other questionable things on a company-sponsored student trip to Peru. And then the newsroom revolted, sent a letter of complaint, management kind of folded, and he resigned. He was kind of pushed out, let's be honest about it. So now Don McNeil has some things to say. And, you know, it changes my view of him a little bit. It doesn't necessarily let him off the hook, but I'm just going to read a whole bunch of it because it's fascinating reading. He talks about reporters. We make America what it is, free press. But we're still jackals. He includes himself. We can befriend you for years and then bite your arm off just as you're offering us a treat. We can't help it. It's the nature of the job. The highest levels, like Watergate, it's about digging for the truth. At the basis level, when even the crummiest scandal erupts, you have to repeat the accusation, even if you know it's untrue or half-true, no matter how much you may personally like the source you're hurting. Then he talks about himself. He talks a lot about himself. Am I principled, old-school, blunt, cranky, or the end of the a-hole era at the Times, as Vanity Fair let an anonymous source describe me? Okay, kind of seems like a cheap shot. But he has more to say about that, and I'm cleaning it up a little bit. Am I really an a-hole? I don't think so. Not most of the time. I'm someone who holds doors for people, schmoozes with anyone, shovels my neighbor's sidewalks, occasionally buys lunch in the cafeteria for strangers who forget their credit cards. I pass on story ideas, share my sources. I don't hog bylines. Okay, so he's saying I'm a pretty good guy. But then he says, now there's an exception. If you're an editor and you write an error into my copy, I can definitely be an a-hole. I'm one of the biggest non-fans of the New York Times editing process. And he's a former copy editor. Because we're an editor's paper rather than a writer's paper, and this has been the rap on the Times for many decades, every editor feels entitled to and even obligated to make changes. I'm the previously anonymous author of the words once quoted in an internal Times report. Every story is a fire hydrant, and the hydrant is passed from dog to dog to dog. The dogs don't change the nature of the hydrant. They rarely improve it. Um, he says, look, he understands uh, the, the copy editors have a tough job. But what fries my shorts and makes me an a-hole is gratuitous changes and unnecessary shifting of paragraphs, especially when the editor hasn't read the story carefully. Here's an example. PC had a, that changed every reference to vaccines to drugs. I went over to the editor and said, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what you're doing? Vaccines and drugs are different. A vaccine is something you take to prevent illness. A drug is something you take when you're already ill. The editor pushes back. Well, they're both medicines, and I thought it was repetitive. It was repetitive, so you decided to make it wrong. It's under my byline. You're making me look like an idiot. This is like taking a baseball writer's story and chasing all the home runs to touchdowns. Don't you think someone will notice? So, yeah, I can be an a-hole. And if I lashed out at you personally, I'm very sorry. 
And finally, McNeil says, uh, it's been quite baffling and painful for me to have people assume I'm a racist and believe that I said the ridiculous things I'm accused of saying, that racism is over, that white supremacy doesn't exist, that white privilege doesn't exist, or that I defended the use of blackface or said horrible things about black teenagers. This goes back to the Peru trip. He's disputing what a lot of the students said to the New York Times. My girlfriend thinks I have a high-functioning Asperger aspect to my personality. I'm empathetic about suffering, but I also very much misread audience. Audience is a young Haitian-American colleague and friend who sat behind me for three years in Science News, called me after a very critical Daily Beast story about all this. I told him what I'd actually said in Peru. He said, Donald, you sound exactly like my father. He would also say, you can't dress like a thug to a job interview and expect to get the job. But from you, it sounds racist. So pretty, you know, it's defensive, it's candid, it's honest from his point of view, doesn't let him off the hook, uh, shows you why he was difficult to work with. And Don McNeil has now had his say. Finally, story number five. Let's talk about Dr. Seuss. And again, you know, cat in the hat, green eggs and ham. I mean, the guy was brilliant. But it's a mixed bag. And I first heard about there was a school district in Virginia that was raising questions about including Dr. Seuss books in something called Read Across America. It's an annual thing. And now the official organization that controls Dr. Seuss's legacy, Theodore Geisel, has announced, this is his company, that it will cease sales of six of his children's books over racist and insensitive depictions. Statement time for his birthday. He was born on March 2nd, 1904. Dr. Seuss Enterprises told the AP that these titles, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, that's a period popular book. I've read that one to my kids. If I ran the zoo, McElligott's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer will no longer be published to hurtful depictions. Um, and... These books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong, said Dr. Seuss Enterprises. Ceasing sale of these books is only part of our commitment to our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. Now, I got to tell you, what's surprising about this is that one of my favorite Dr. Seuss books is actually a very, even subtle, but maybe subtle for kids, not so subtle for adults, attack on racism. And it's about the Sneetches. And he's got the Sneetches that have stars on their bellies and the Sneetches that don't have stars on their bellies. And they're always at war, and they, the ones with stars discriminate the ones that don't have stars. So then the ones that didn't have stars had, had some like operation where they put the stars on, and then the ones that originally did have stars had it taken off because they wanted to be different and superior. And if you can't see that as an allegory for people who look differently or different skin color, um, you ought to go back and reread it. So I always thought Dr. Seuss was like, hey, you know, he kind of draws these crazy creatures and creates sympathy for them. And this one book in particular, I always thought, was a pretty good screed, entertaining screed against racism. But it does turn out that earlier in his career, uh, Dr. Seuss uh, did do, do drawings that clearly were racist or anti-Semitic or whatever, and that's part of his legacy. I think he later came to regret that from what I'm reading. I need to understand more about this. But when you have some of these drawings, which his own company, you know, the, the, the one outfit, the one organization dedicated to preserving his legacy, says, no, 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 this is not cancel culture. You, I mean, the guy's dead. You can't cancel him. 
But you could cancel his legacy. You could hurt his book sales. You know, he remains a force. I mean, how many generations of children have grown up having Dr. Seuss read to him? Uh, Ted Cruz likes Dr. Seuss. He read Green Eggs and Ham on the Senate floor during one of his interminable filibusters. Um, so I have to, you know, bow to the judgment of these people that the, the stuff is bad. One of them showed kind of like a white person on top and animals below or people who look differently below. Uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to look at each or every one of these books. But I do think, you know, this can be very PC. This can be out of control. I mean, when you have Disney Plus putting a warning on the Muppet Show, I think that is insane. So I think there's a lot of PC culture run amok here. And maybe the Seuss Company felt under pressure from some of those in school districts saying we don't want to make these books available anymore, or at least not include them in our annual readathon. But these are the people who love Theodore Geisel. These are the people who are trying to defend and protect Dr. Seuss's legacy. So if they say these books went too far, I think I have to accept it. And, uh, but it's an interesting story, which I, uh, I'm going to be covering more on this. I think we'll do something on Fox for this today. Thank you all for listening. I hope you stay safe as the number of vaccinated Americans slowly creeps up. We'd sure like to see it creep up faster. I'll just remind you that you can get the podcast here on foxnewspodcast.com on your Amazon device. There's Google Podcasts. There's Spotify. There's Apple iTunes. We'll see you folks tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.